0: Good morning. morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. I would not be who I am today if it were not for my mom. And so I'm sure many of the other people in this room would say the same. And so thank you to all the mothers out there. You have one of the most important jobs in the world and often goes unappreciated. So we're grateful for you. I also want to recognize that this can be a difficult day for some either to those who have lost their mother or have lost children or those who long to be mothers. And so we want to just say thank you for being here with us today. We're grateful that you are worshiping with us. God sees you, we see you, and we're grateful you're here. Now, it's a privilege to preach to you today. I love this church. I'm grateful to be a part of this body. And I've been praying that this message would be challenging and edifying to you all. If you have your Bible, please open with me to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 30. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. If you do not own one, that is our gift to you. You can find Matthew's location in the table of contents, and when you get to that book, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We are again in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. As you're turning there, I wanted to give a little bit of background for a short introduction of myself for those that may not know me. My name is Sean Howitt, and I have been a member at Christchurch Westchester since June of this past summer. I grew up in Thornton, Pennsylvania, and around the age of, uh, or around 2009, God saved me. I went to Bayard Rustin High School down the street, which, public school, I know, I'm a bit of a bad boy, but it was a great time. And through a series of events, the Lord brought me to Liberty University, where I did undergrad and seminary. After graduating seminary, I was an associate pastor at a small church in Ridley Park. During that time, I was also working with a local handyman and renovating houses with my dad. I really enjoy juggling things. After about two years, I had the opportunity to step into my current position, which is the assistant chaplain at Williamson College of the Trades. Williamson has been described as one of the best-kept secrets in Delaware County. A little bit of background on the school. Williamson was started by a Christian in 1888, and the mission of the school is to give financially disadvantaged young men the opportunity to learn a trade for free. If you're accepted at Williamson, you receive a full scholarship. Room, board, everything for all three years. The only thing students pay for are their books and tools, which they get to keep. And if a student makes it through this program, we have multiple career fairs. where around 120 to 140 companies come to hire our 75 seniors and give internships to our underclassmen. The school has changed so many lives. We have members of our board, the board of trustees of, of Williamson, whose parents or grandparents came from financially difficult backgrounds and then went to Williamson, and generations later, their families are now millionaires. We not only care about training Williamson men in their trade, But to secure their financial future, but we also seek to develop their character as well. They start every morning in chapel, sitting under God's word. Our faculty and staff are committed to mentoring and caring for the students. And as the assistant chaplain, I have the privilege of mentoring these students, counseling them, leading Bible studies, preaching in chapel, and also leading community events. I love my school, and it's a privilege to be a part of its mission. But the reason that I tell you all this is that I need your prayers, my church family. I love what I do. I love my men but it is challenging at times. The majority of our students are not Christians. And so if you think of us, please pray that the Lord would bring to salvation these students at Williamson. We need your prayers. Now, most of my preaching is done in chapel at 7.30 in the morning to a bunch of half-asleep college men. So this is a refreshing change of pace. It's good to be here. Before we read our text today, I want to pray and ask for God's help. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth, and we thank you that we have a gospel to preach. I pray that you be with me as I uh, give the word to Christ Church Westchester, Lord, and I pray that you help us all to receive it, and that through it we will be molded more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Please be with us today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, the passage we are looking at today is one of my favorites, though If you spend enough time with me, you'll find that I say that about many passages, so it may not mean much to some. However, this passage in particular has deeply impacted the way that I live and view life. We will be reading the parable of the talents, and I'm excited to share with you a few truths that are found in this text. I hope that it will encourage and challenge you as it so often does for me. Whenever I feel like I am losing focus on what is important, I return to this text. For those who may have not heard the term before, a parable is a fictional story used to convey a lesson. They were often used by Christ throughout his teaching. We have not been studying Matthew, and so a little bit of background on the parable and its surrounding context. The parable of the talents was preached by Christ at the end of what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It is called this because it's the teachings that Jesus gave while on the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 and was given in the final weeks of Jesus' life, the final week of Jesus' life. The main subject of this teaching is the end times and what to expect when Jesus returns. Christians believe that one day Christ will return to judge the world. I believe that Matthew, the author of the gospel, includes this teaching here intentionally. It is the final teaching of Christ that Matthew records before he records the arrest crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, as well as the Great Commission. I believe that Matthew wants his readers to know that Christ will return before they read about his final days on earth. The Olivet Discord includes many warnings and parables given about what those days will be like. Matthew placed the parable of the talents between two other famous and significant passages. If you look above the parable of the talents, you will see the parable of the ten virgins which is where Jesus' message is that we me must be prepared for his second coming. This parable tells of ten virgins carrying lamps who are waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom and the beginning of a wedding feast. Five of the virgins were wise and brought extra oil for their lamps. Five were foolish and they did not. When the bridegroom arrives, the foolish ones had to slip away to buy more oil and they end up locked out of the wedding feast. The point of this parable is being prepared for the return of Christ for no one knows the day or the hour that he will return. Immediately following this parable, if you look at the next passage down, it's an explanation of what the final judgment will look like. In it, Christ is depicted as a judge who will separate the people of this world as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats in his herd. It tells us that in the end, all the people of this world will either go on to inherit the kingdom of God prepared for them before the foundation of the world or into eternal life. Or, Sorry, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The two groups are distinguished by their faith in Christ and by the way they did or did not serve Christ by caring for the poor, thirsty, and hungry in this world. This passage is a sobering reminder that in the end, everyone in this world will either go on to eternal punishment in hell or eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. These passages help us to understand the placement of our text today. The text before our passage explains that we must be ready for the return of Christ. And the text after is about what the judgment will look like when Christ returns. And in between these two passages, Matthew places the parable of the talents. A parable illustrating what God expects from us while we wait for his return in judgment. Please look at this text with me, beginning in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking today. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, "'I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow "'and gathering where you scattered no seed. "'So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. "'Here you have what is yours.' "'But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant. "'You knew that I reap where I have not sown "'and gather where I scattered no seed. "'Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, "'and at my coming I should have received "'what was my own with interest. "'So take the talent from him "'and give it to the one who has ten talents.' For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Now, whenever we read a parable, it's always important to ask, who is who and what are the events being described? Again, this story that is being used by Christ is to illustrate a particular lesson. In this parable, we have a master that entrusts three servants with various amounts of money. He then leaves for a long time. Two servants invest the money well and make more, while the third hides away out of laziness and fear. The master then returns and rewards the first two servants and punishes the third. In this parable, Jesus is the master. The journey is his ascension into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and his return is the coming judgment that will happen in the future. A talent in those days was a large sum of money. Talents were of silver and weighed between 60 to 80 pounds. Some say that one talent was worth 20 years wages. The point being that these servants were each entrusted a large sum of money by their master. A lot of responsibility. The first two servants are understood as faithful servants who serve Christ until he returns. And they have faith in him. In the next passage, they will be considered those who have faith in him who cared for Christ by feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, and so on and so forth. Theologians are a bit divided on who the third servant rep- represents. Some say the servant is a Christian who did not use his talents well in this life and will not receive a reward in heaven, while others believe it to represent those who did not believe in Christ and are not faithful to him and are cast into hell. I agree with the latter, that the third servant represents those who do not believe in Christ. But like all of mankind, are given numerous gifts by God, whether monetarily, through their abilities, or circumstantially, and are not faithful to use them for God's kingdom. Nor do they have faith in Christ. Now, I would like to begin by giving the main point of this parable up front and then breaking that down into three other truths that are present in this text. I titled my message, While We Wait for the Master to Return. A subtitle for this message could have been, What do we do while we wait? The answer, what what does Christ expect from us while we wait for his return? The answer, quite simply, is this. Christ calls us to faithfully steward every resource he has given us while we wait for his return. So there's the simple point of the parable. Now, let me complicate it a little bit. The first truth I want to pull from this text is this. And to be clear, I'm speaking to Christians those seeking to be like the first two servants in this parable. This parable tells us that everyone who is a follower of Christ has been given gifts and talents by God that he expects us to use for his service. We are not to sit on the sidelines. We must be using our talents for the kingdom of God. The talents in this parable do not simply represent the money that God has blessed us with, but every gift and resource we have, including our physical, intellectual, and artistic abilities that we have been given by God. For when we step back and think about it, what God has given, when we think about what God has given us, we realize that everything we have is a gift of God's grace towards us. We cannot take credit for anything. The fact that we have been given life, that I have eyes to see the paper in front of me, a voice to share this message with you, and a heart and internal organs working to keep me alive, everything in this life is a gift from God. We are completely dependent on him. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Colossians 1.17 tells us that in Christ all things hold together. Meaning that if Christ wanted to, he could end existence like that. We are dependent creatures. Everything we have, including the breath in our lungs, is a gift of God that must be stewarded well. But if we are to heed this parable and steward our resources well while Christ is away, it will likely be helpful to be a little more specific about what our talents are. I encourage you to take a moment to think about the talents that God has given you. What are the gifts and resources, the physical, intellectual, and creative abilities that God has uniquely given you? I do not ask this so that we might make much of ourselves. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when they were boasting in their riches, what do you have that you have not been given. Everything we have is a gift, and we are called to use it to make much of Christ. There are many things that could be considered talents. Money, obviously. Practical skills like working with our hands. Administrative abilities. Perhaps you are gifted in the sciences or you're gifted in the trades. There are spiritual gifts, musical or artistic abilities. Even circumstances in our lives can be viewed through this lens. It changes everything. I remember when the Lord taught me to view my singleness as a talent that should be faithfully stewarded. This is a bit of a soapbox of mine, especially in Christian circles. But I always emphasize with people that singleness is not a curse. Singleness is not a curse. And when I say that, I do not mean to trivialize the difficulties that come along with singleness. But I think we miss out on so much of what God wants for us when we view singleness as a disease that needs to be cured or a problem that needs to be remedied. When I talk with people about this point, I always emphasize that both marriage and singleness are great things of God that each come with their unique joys and difficulties. In singleness, there is incredible freedom. A single person can pursue and do things for the Lord that married people cannot. There is so much good that can be done in the freedom of singleness. There are difficulties as well, such as loneliness and temptations towards selfishness with one's time. And then in marriage, there's the beauty of deep connection, sharing your life with someone and the potential to raise up a family in the Lord together. But marriage also restricts and the God honoring responsibilities that come along with that covenant can keep an individual from other things. I know that there are different nuances to these categories, but generally I want to point out that each one is beautiful and challenging in their own ways. They are great talents given by God that must be stewarded well for his kingdom. The Lord actually taught me this in the final semester of seminary, my final semester of seminary. I had dated throughout college, but in my final semester, I was single. And I decided that I really wanted to focus on that and soak in my last few months of school. At that point, I'd been working myself pretty hard. I had been taking 12 to 15 credits a semester, working part-time, and along with a friend, I oversaw the ministry of a hall of 70 men. Again, I really enjoy juggling things. But in my final semester, I thought to myself, why don't we cut back a little bit? See what happens. Let's see what happens with that. And so I did, and I discovered this marvelous thing called free time. If you've never had it, you gotta try it, it's incredible. So I had free time and I was determined to have as much fun as I, could soak, as, as I could have soaking in my last semester. And I'm not gonna lie, it was a blast. I was hanging with friends all the time, planning road trips, hiking basically every mountain in Virginia. And at Liberty, where I went to college, there's a curfew for students that live on campus. However, if you're in a certain leadership position, you're allowed to take students out after curfew. And so I was one of those people And so my guys were always asking for a persona of mine that they like to call late night Sean. (laughs) Late night Sean is a rare form of Sean. He wears his hat backwards and he takes guys to Waffle House at two in the morning. Thankfully, the curfew at Williamson is 1030. So late night Sean is now bed by 11, Sean. But at that time, my friends were getting late night Sean all the time, which no one needs that much Waffle House. But It was still enjoyable. But anyway, I'm having a blast. I'm enjoying my freedom. And as I'm looking towards graduation, I was dreaming of all the fun things that I would do with my freedom when there weren't books to read and papers to write. However, the Lord changed my perspective one morning. I was reading 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about the freedom found in singleness. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, Paul, I get it, bro. This is amazing. Freedom is fantastic. you have making some really good points here. I'm loving it. And as I'm reading, I keep having this thought pop into my mind. I couldn't shake this feeling that I needed to watch this one movie clip that was on YouTube, which was odd. And it keeps popping into my head, and I remember praying and saying, Lord, I'm reading your word. Paul and I are connecting. Why do I feel like I need to watch this clip? It's not scripture. It's not inspired. Is this from you, or what is this? So it wouldn't go away, and I ended up deciding, I've got the free time. Let me take three minutes to watch this. The clip that I watched is from the movie Braveheart. It's one of my favorite movies. I know it's one of Raymond's, and it might be a ministry thing. But the clip was one of the famous speeches that Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, gives at the Battle of Stirling. If you're unfamiliar with the movie, it follows the story of Scotland fighting for its independence from England. There is a part of the movie where the Scottish forces have gathered to fight against the English army. As the English forces arrive, it becomes clear that Scotland is outnumbered. And the people in the Scottish army slowly but surely begin to flee. Wallace arrives and addresses the army in order to inspire them to stay. So I pull up this clip, and in the first few seconds, I realized why I needed to watch it. In the beginning of the clip, Wallace addresses the army, and he says, Sons of Scotland, you have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? What Will you do with that freedom? It was in that moment that the Holy Spirit hit me like a ton of bricks and kind of clicked a few things into place for me. It was as if God were saying to me, Sean, I have given you this freedom. What will you do with it? Up until then, I have been viewing freed, the freedom that I have in singleness as something to enjoy when God calls me to view it as something, as a talent to be stewarded well. I do not mean to suggest that we should not have fun. There is a great place for that in the abundant life. But at that point in time, I was planning on living life like the third servant and burying the freedom that I have in singleness away in leisure rather than leveraging it for the kingdom of God. So that same question that I was confronted with, I ask of you today. What will you do with what you have been given? What will you do with what you have been given? This passage is clear. Everyone gets a talent. Even those that don't know Christ have gifts. Examine your life from every angle. Perhaps there are things that you are not seeing as talents that could be stewarded better for the kingdom of God. And when we find them, let us ask ourselves, what will we do with them while we wait for our master to return? The second truth that I want to draw from this passage is one that I remind myself of often. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to get caught in the comparison trap. We may look at our three talents and wonder why that person over there got five. And maybe we see someone over there that has even more. We may feel like Saul who killed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to let go of our human desire to compare and envy one another and rejoice in the beautiful truth of this parable that we have an audience of one and he has a different success than the world does. Different definition of success than the world does. It can be so easy to get caught up in what other people think of your talents and what you're doing with them. It can be easy to take our talents and try to use them to please others or chase after worldly success. But this passage asserts the truth that there is only one being we will stand before at the end of our lives. You will not stand before your mother or your father, not your husband or your wife, not your professor or boss, but Jesus Christ himself. That is who we are to answer to at the end of our lives. And look at his response to the first two servants. The first servant was given five talents, and he made five talents more. The second servant was given two talents and made two talents more. Those two servants were different in what they were given and what they produced. But look at verses 21 and 23. These verses contain the responses to the first two servants. And you may note that both responses are identical. The response of the master is identical for both. And we're talking about two different servants who quantitatively were gifted in different ways and in what they produce, and yet, word for word, they are given the same response by their master. To both of these servants, it is said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. More than looking for what you produce with your talents, God is looking for us to be faithful With our talents. Success in the eyes of God is faithfulness, not production. Success in the eyes of the only being that matters is faithfulness, faithfully serving God with whatever talents we have been given. Brothers and sisters, I will not stand up here and pretend that this truth is easy to believe or act on. We live in a culture that worships worldly success. We worship production. It is the air that we breathe. Everyone wants to be the five-talent servant in this parable. We worship great results. We worship large sum of monies. We worship impressive achievements. We long to be seen as impressive by others, while the God of the universe longs for us to be faithful to him. This is one of the reasons that I return to this passage so often. To remind myself what success is, being faithful to use what he has given me to serve him, regardless of whether that lines up with the world's definition of success. For when we drift from this and let the world define what success is, we will often neglect the things of God in our pursuit of worldly success. We may be faithful to our job, but we may neglect our family. Faithful to our reputation, but neglectful of our neighbor. Faithful to our stocks, but neglectful to the word of God. Success in the eyes of God is faithfulness. Faithfulness to use what he has given us to serve him. We need to remind ourselves of this, of who we are going to answer to at the end. It is so easy to work to hear well done from others rather than well done from our Lord. So, when we take an inventory of the talents that God has given us, Let us not look to the right or to the left in jealousy at what others were given or seek to use our talents for worldly success, but rather fix our eyes on Christ and faithfully steward what we have been given until he returns. To leverage what we have, as Charles Spurgeon says, for the glory of God and the good of souls. A little practical point that I would add on to this truth. If you're unsure of what to do with your talents, you've taken your inventory, you know you have them, but you don't know what to do, remember what God commands. We are commanded in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that everything else will be added to us because of that. My old pastor had a great way of explaining this verse by saying that when Christ says to seek first his kingdom, he means to concern yourself with the things that concern him. Fulfill the Great Commission, and use your talents to spread the gospel to all nations. Follow the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These commandments may at times seem too broad and general, but I believe that this is part of the joy of the Christian life. We are told to share the gospel, love God, and love our neighbors, and we have the privilege of filling in the blanks of what that looks like. Go to Japan, go to the Middle East, go to Kenya, go across the street and share the gospel with your neighbor. Start a nonprofit, donate money to a mission agency, serve your church and local food pantry, adopt and foster, be a faithful witness in your workplace and be bold with Christ with your friends. Brothers and sisters, and credit to Pastor Kevin DeYoung here, I believe that God is sovereign and has a specific plan for each of our lives but nowhere in Scripture does He promise to reveal that plan beforehand. Let us not stress or get caught in indecision over finding specifically what God wants us to do, but let us instead get to work, erring on the side of action, for God is sovereign and will get you where He wants you to go. Let's look at our talents and do something that leverages them for the glory of God and the good of souls while we wait for our Master to return. And finally, the third truth I have already mentioned, but I want to examine it more, much more closely. This is the fact that we will all stand before God one day. We will all stand before God one day. The master gives these servants his gifts with the intent to return one day. I love the way one commentator puts it where he said that we are waiting for verse 19 and living in the previous few verses. Verse 19 tells us that after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. We are in that long time. We are waiting for our master to return. And scripture tells us that we will stand before him and give an account for our lives when he does return. 2 Corinthians 5 10 tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is will happen. This is a reality that everyone in this world will experience, whether you're a Christian or not. And I believe that this reality can invoke two responses in us. One is that it can scare us. It can scare us. If we read this passage and find ourselves connecting with the story of the third servant, it should scare us. And if that is you today, I urge you to trust in Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel, recognizing that you are a sinner, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life you could not live, die the death that you deserve, and rose again from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Trust in Christ. We cannot use our talents in a way that pleases God without the saving work of the Holy Spirit and his work in us to bear fruit. Without trusting in Christ, even the most righteous deeds that we do before the Lord are, as Isaiah 64, 6 puts it, like a polluted garment before him. If you have not repented of your sins and believed in the saving work of Christ, I invite you to trust in Christ. Trust in Christ so that you may not be cast into hell like the third servant, but rather commended for your Holy Spirit-enabled life like the first two. If you want someone to talk this through with, please find myself, one of the elders, or any of the members at the end of this service and ask them what you must do to be saved from your sins, what you must do to know Christ. We would love to have that conversation with you. Returning to our parable, we must take the cautionary tale of this third servant seriously, the Christian and the non-Christian alike. For brothers and sisters, I am sure that there will be nothing more terrifying than standing before God at the end of our lives and realizing that we have wasted it. I'm always struck by one of the final scenes in the movie Schindler's List. If you haven't seen the film, feel free to plug your ears, but the movie is older than me, so most of you in this room have had a bit of time to see it. Schindler's List tells the true story of a man named Oskar Schindler, who was a businessman during World War II in Nazi Germany. As the war was raging, Schindler was profiting off the war and was spending his time partying and socializing while millions of Jews were being exterminated. Eventually, Schindler has a change of heart and began saving Jewish people by employing them in his company. In the end, he saved 1,100 Jews from dying in concentration camp. There is a powerful scene at the end of the movie when the war is ending and Schindler needs to flee. As he is preparing to depart... He is saying his goodbyes to the Jewish people he saved. The scene shows him surrounded by hundreds of people. And as he says goodbye to his assistant, Schindler begins to break down. He looks around at his remaining possessions, including the car that he is about to use to flee. And he realizes, as he states, I could have got more out. I could have got more out. Schindler Begins to sob and states, if I made more money, I wasted so much money. His assistant tries to reassure him that he did enough, but Schindler breaks down, repeating over and over again that he could have done more. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to get to the end of our lives and realize that we could have done more. The famous missionary Jim Elliott once stated, when you come to the end of your life, make sure that all you have left to do is die. Let us not waste what God has given us. We are sinner saints that will mess up and leave things undone, and God is faithful to work through our sinfulness, but let us live life intentionally. And in this charge, I do not want to lay a weight too great upon us, I do not want us to think that that in the Christian life there is no room to relax or enjoy ourselves. This earth is beautiful, and it is filled with good gifts that have come down from the Father of lights. We glorify Him by enjoying these good gifts, but our enjoyment should flow from a place of taking this life that we have been entrusted seriously. Let us live faithful lives knowing that we will give an account to our Master. So, the reality that we will stand before God one day can invoke fear in us, but I believe that it should also excite us. For one, this means that our King is coming back for us. Brothers and sisters, our King is coming back, and that is a reason to rejoice. He has promised to return, and our King, our God, has never broken a promise The Master will return from his long journey. One day we will live. Verse 19. Our King's return should excite us, as should the fact that we have been entrusted responsibility by that same King. We are not to twiddle our thumbs waiting for the King's return, but we are called to be a part of his work while we wait. What a privilege! This means that our life has purpose, our life has meaning. Nothing is meaningless in our lives because one day we will stand before our great king and give an account for all of it. And he wants to work through us. What we do matters. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have a job to do. There are good works that are prepared for us. And we get to work on the king's behalf while we wait for his return. And one of the most beautiful things about giving an account to the master is that God sees our good works. Brothers and sisters, if you are like me, there may be times where you feel that no one sees the good work that you do. No one notices the sacrifices that you make. Mothers, You give up so much and often receive so little appreciation. Fathers, you may feel that no one understands the pressure that rests upon your shoulders. Young adults, you may feel that no one is noticing how hard you are trying to honor God with your life in the midst of an antagonistic culture. And pastors, elders, deacons, and volunteers those that make the church run and serve the community. You may feel like your work is not only unappreciated, but people only see the mistakes you make and where you fall short. Brothers and sisters, this passage can help us break free from the comforting arms of self-pity and rejoice in the fact that while, we may not, that while, while others may not see what we do, God sees it. The only eyes in the universe that matter sees the sacrifices that you make, the good that you do, and he rejoices in it for it is only by his Holy Spirit working in you that you are able to produce such fruit. Not only does he see it, but as we see in this parable, he may one day commend you for it. And what a day that would be. I believe deeply that more than appreciation from a spouse or a parent or a boss, what our soul longs to hear most is our Creator say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And by the grace of Jesus Christ and the strength of His Holy Spirit, you may experience that one day. A joy unlike any other. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, and I will leave you with this. He comments on the overwhelming joy of hearing well done from our Creator by saying this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Brothers and sisters, I pray this passage has encouraged and challenged you to glorify God with your lives and press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our master is away, but he will return. Let us faithfully steward the resources and abilities he has given us for the glory of God and the good of souls while we wait. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have trusted us. We thank you that you have given us purpose. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself here, Lord, that you help us to faithfully steward all that you have given us. I pray that you guide us in all of these things, I pray that you help us to preach the gospel and share it with our neighbors. And we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to work with the talents that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.